hello and welcome along to ED's COP26 covered podcast brought to you daily from right here at the heart of COP26 in Glasgow. It's Thursday the 11th of November which means it's day 11 of the climate summit and specifically uh, this is the day which sees the COP26 presidency program themed around cities, regions and the built environment. So there are a range of discussions and, and fringe events happening here today which are all about advancing action in the places that we live from our buildings and communities through to entire cities and regions, uh, including this discussion because uh, for this very special episode of COP26 Covered, I'm delighted to offer up a mini panel of sustainability and climate experts from across the built environment sector to discuss some of the big developments and announcements coming out of COP. Uh, along with the broader drivers, challenges, opportunities when it comes to achieving a net zero carbon built environment. Now, we've only got about half an hour, so we'll get straight into it. Um, joining me in this very quiet corner of the green zone here at COP26, uh, we have, in no particular order, Manish Datta, the director of the industry body UKGBC, Magali Anderson, chief sustainability and innovation officer for Hull Sim, the building materials company, and Zoe Hazeman, the global head of sustainability and ESG at Jacobs, the construction firm. Um, and actually, uh, by way of introduction, in your own words, perhaps you could uh, just very briefly explain your organisation and, and the role that you play within it. And let's go in the order I just introduced you randomly there. Munish, you first. Thanks, Luke. And um, it's really great to be here with such a distinguished panel. So uh, I represent UK Green Building Council, UKGBC. We're a member-based charity. We've been around for 14 years. And our mission is to radically, and that's an important word, improve the sustainability of the built environment right across its value chain. So we work with over 600 members representing everyone from the way uh, real estate is invested in, the way it's planned, the way it's designed, the way it's built, products that enable it to be built, and finally the way it's occupied and maintained. Great stuff. Thank you, Manish. Uh, Let's go on to yourself, Magali. So, yes, thanks, Luke, and as well, very happy to be here. So, Holcim is a building material company. We basically make a lot of cement, a lot of aggregate, but also some um, solution and products for the built environment. And uh, we are in 70 countries, 70,000 employees. So, basically, a lot of cement, a lot of concrete, which means a lot of opportunity to decarbonize. Mm. Okay, look forward to discussing the opportunity. And finally, Zoe. Hi, Luke. Thanks for having me. Um, So I work for Jacobs. We're not actually a construction company. We're a professional services and technical um, consulting company. Um, We are Fortune 200, 55,000 employees, $15 billion um, revenue. So our reach is far and wide. We work across the built environment, um, transportation infrastructure, major programs, projects, water, environment. Um, so we, we cover and touch a lot of areas where there's tremendous opportunity to do better and, and drive sustainability. And my role is head of sustainability. Mm, okay. Yeah, sorry I mentioned construction company. It's the joys of live podcasting. I thought I said consultancy firm, but anyway. Um, so COP26, here we are looking out on a nice sunny Glasgow here in the, in the relatively tranquil green zone. Today's the Built Environment Day, as I mentioned. Let's just start with some kind of general hopes, expectations, fears uh, from today in terms of some of the kind of policy announcements that we're hoping to get out of it. Does anyone want to kind of kick off with anything in particular that they're hoping to see come out of this discussion? I'll kick off if I may. I I think um, I just want to sort of rewind a bit to last week, actually, because I think last week will trigger... There was a particular announcement around finance last week that I think will trigger quite a lot for the built environment. 
So the announcement, uh, A, that 130 trillion is now sort of aligned to a net zero future from the finance industry is very promising. It means that the, there's, a fin there's finance available for the transition. And secondly, and that's perhaps more significantly, certainly in the UK, the announcement that the, you know, there's mandatory reporting requirements on listed companies and on financial institutions means that um, all of those will have to publicly declare transition plans to net zero. So not just make commitments, which many of them have, something like 60%, I think, of uh, FTSE 100 companies are now in the race to the UNFCCC race to zero, but actually back that up with, with published, disclosed transition plans. Mm -hmm. And I think when people look at their, particularly their, you know, um, direct emissions, they can't, you know, built environments are the very heart of that. Um, so I think that is going to, that is a big, 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 big announcement from last week. Mm. Magali, you're speaking uh, later today. Might be good to hear about a bit about uh, what you're going to be speaking about, but also, yeah, get your general thoughts on on the COP. No, I think like like every COP, full of hope. Sometimes a bit disappointed, but it it seems to be a bit different this time. It seems that there is more commitment, more engagement, both on the private sectors, but also on the on the public. So it's quite encouraging. Um, clearly, in our case, we have today low carbon product on the market and the only thing i ask is that people um, public sector are incentivized to buy our low carbon product it sounds simple when you look at it that way but what it actually means it means that we co2 pricing it means article 6 it means that the engagement for example we we are part of an engagement that was announced today by with the c40 um, of reducing by 50 percent the carbon footprint of any new building by 2030 all of that is fantastic, but for that you need the legal framework to follow, you need people to be incentivized to buy low product instead, low carbon products, sorry, instead of normal products. Mm. Yeah. I, I agree. Um, I think there's a lot of great signals, um, a lot of progress made, a very lofty, ambitious, you know, the commitment level. Um, what I'd like to see today is some more direction of how it's going to be how cities and you know decision makers who are in charge of the big infrastructure projects are able to make the right decision easier, um, and and you know connect connecting that amazing financial commitment that 130 trillion with actual investment ready plans for cities to be able to we need to make it easy for them the technologies are there you know the a lot of innovations are there to deliver on the um, carbon reductions but we need to sort of connect a few dots um, so anything that can be made to progress that today and going forward is going to be really helpful um, to, to get us on this journey look I was just going to come in and say we well, I agree with all of that but there is a bit of a sting in this which is um, there are some policy gaps at the moment to enable all of that to happen particularly in the UK so we take a UK lens on this forgive me for that for a second but we, we need a clear trajectory to 2030 for building decarbonisation, particularly for new buildings that are still to be built. But of course we can't ignore the bigger elephant in the room, which is existing buildings. And in that we can't ignore existing homes, which, which are in the UK the big price to go after. So we need that sort of certainty in policy to 2030 and beyond to give us um, kind of the right um, confidence, to give the industry confidence to be able to invest and go forward um, and really, really, you know, decarbonise their estates and their clients' estates. I, I also think that um, we can't just this can't just be a carbon-centric conversation. We know that we live in an inter interconnected system of the world. So, biodiversity regeneration 
and the role that the built environment could play in that. And also, you know, we spend 90% of our lives, humanity generally spends 90% of its life in buildings, in, in the built environment. So it has a huge and profound quality of life impact. It has a huge social impact. So whilst this discussion is around carbon, we must make sure we connect it to those things as well. I couldn't agree more on that point. To separate carbon as a distinct area is an absolute mistake. It has to be in that broader context, broader framework. You know, whether it's infrastructure or eco-structure, we need to be thinking about how we bring nature into our infrastructure. Um, in a really innovative way um, because like you said it's so much more than just driving down carbon and creating resiliency in our building infrastructure it's how do we actually you know bring equal access to society and really bring all those broader societal game values into the into the mix as well i love how this discussion is going because that's my my new favorite tagline (laughs) reconcile city and nature because i think with a mega trend and all the construction that's going to happen in the next 30 years if we don't do it with the nature, it's it's going to be a disaster. Yeah. And today, again, products exist. Sorry, a bit like you, I bring back to products myself. We have products to make urban forests. We have products to make vertical forests, green roofs. There's many things we can do. But again, back to being incentivized to do it. Yeah. Would you pay a bit more money? Because obviously, being a, having a, a vertical forest on the wall of a building will be a bit more pricey than a normal building. But then you lower the temperature, you you fight the urban heat island effect. There's so many benefits. Yeah. And I think we just have to do it. There's no That's other it. option. And rather than, and I was listening to some interesting sessions earlier in the week, and get moving away from this um, notion of this is a high, you know, yes, it, it might come at a higher initial cost, but this is an investment. Totally. Um, so rather than talking about the, the funding gap or how we're going to finance stuff, it's like we need to be investing in solutions for broader societal gain and environmental gain as well. And just this, you know, when we put more, inf- develop new infrastructure or even retrofit existing infrastructure, how can we get that building or that, that infrastructure working harder for us as society? So it's eco, you know, this... Um, ecosystems, um, yeah, you know, getting it working harder and giving us a lot more than you know just the initial reason for putting the building in place. It's probably a good opportunity to to mention a report that was launched uh, last week by our sister organisation, the World Green Building Council, which was about uh, beyond the business case for sustainable building. So there's always this, you know, tension, particularly the short term, long term tension, and 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 around the built asset and and. Actually, I think this, this report, which I'd really recommend listeners of this podcast to look up beyond the business case, really dispels that in a, in a very, very clear way and sets out seven what they call irrefutable, uh, irrefutable sort of factors that enable um, a business case uh, to be really, really clear about sustainable building. So it's not just about you know, what, uh, the additional initial cost, it's about the whole life benefits of that building. We don't build buildings for weeks, months, years. We build them for decades and centuries. Mm. And therefore, we must invest in them with that kind of legacy in mind. Mm. And when you when you assess their return on that basis, um, the business case is really clear. Mm-hmm. I feel like I should come back in on this, on this, uh, on this discussion. <laughs> oh, sorry, yeah, welcome back. <laughs> We've got this. Um, so that was my first question. Um, there was a few more points you've, you know, that you've kind of brought up there that kind of cover off some of the questions I already had listed. Policy, nature-based solutions, investment, and getting that kind of business case. Um, we'll start with the policy. I wanted to come back to that point. Manish, you, you brought it up, but it might be good to, to get other input on this as well, uh, about this kind of this need for certainty through to 2030 um, across um, the built environment sector. <coughs> 
can we be more specific on that? Like, what specifically would you want to see from a policy perspective, either like an enabler or something that's a bit of a blocker at the moment that needs removing or accelerating? Is there anything specific that springs to mind? Something maybe um, bouncing of what you were just saying about life cycle assessment. I think something we always miss when we talk about climate is not just the CO2 you emit today, but the overall CO2 over the full life cycle. So if you look at um, the, the built environment, 70% of the CO2 emission of the built environment is the running of the building. So if every city is two more morning, we're asking what we call EPDs, environmental product declarations, for any construction, I think we could progress quite well because you look at the three scopes, you look at direct and indirect emission over the full life cycle. So if I had one thing to ask myself, it would be carbon pricing Article 6 mm. and it would be EPD compulsory in any public procurement and why not yeah. private procurement as well if we could. All procurement. I, I, I mean, I, I fully support that and I'd add to it that what we're asking for is a set and clear fixed trajectory to 2030 to deal with zero operation emissions, but not to stop there to look at what we're calling whole life carbon, to look at embodied emissions as well. And there was a report, I think, by WBSCD that came out again during COP that said about half of the emissions, actually, when you assess it, as we go forward, as we become better at decarbonizing operational emissions, about half the emissions will come from what we call embodied carbon. So our approach at GBC is very much to look at whole life carbon. Mm. embodied plus operational because we're only really dealing with half the problem if we only talk about operational mm. so having some clear policies that focus first on operational but then also build in embodied carbon is really critical and this is the roadmap you're launching yeah, later yeah. today right so actually live while we're here now my colleagues in the blue zone mm. are currently launching a whole life carbon roadmap um, for the uk built environment and this is a real labor of love because we've involved about a hundred of our members and partners right across the industry and uk government to create a sectoral roadmap all the way to 2050. And this is for embodied or capital carbon or upfront carbon, whichever way you want to uh, talk about it, for infrastructure and buildings and also operational carbon. And this is to set out a clear sort of uh, pathway to how the industry gets to zero. It, it gives industry something to compare its progress to. Uh, and it also sets out a number of recommendations within it around policy, um, around um, how, how we would bring that roadmap, how we would measure the roadmap around the kind of um, financial um, sort of um, catalysts that are needed for it, etc, etc. I think that consistent framework is really important. And when I look at it from the perspective of Jacobs and, you know, how we bid for work with clients on major infrastructure projects, it's the ability to level that playing field as well. So all of the bids that are coming forward for a big infrastructure project all have to talk about you know the the different value that it's going to drive you know life cycle carbon absolutely but also social value as well so you're actually you know being assessed and judged on what you can bring to contribute and and add value wider social value through that infrastructure project Um, and so it doesn't come down to costs it doesn't come down to you know variables that that differ from company to company you've really got that consistent playing field and framework to to assess the value of the the infrastructure project Mm. and i think when we talk about embodied carbon which is basically the carbon that is for people who don't know use during the construction this is where the work over the valuation is so important because today for example we are judged on our co2 per cubic meter of concrete makes no sense we should be judged on the co2 of the square meter built because 
it doesn't matter how much CO2 you have in the concrete. What matters is how much CO2, how much concrete you use. So if you use technologies such as 3D printing, etc., yep. that lowers how much concrete we need, then you are, you are fine. And that's the type of innovation we have to move to, not just looking at the product itself, but the usage and look at the full value chain. And today, that discussion, unfortunately, is not happening enough. We've got to be incentivizing the right things. And like you said, that's obviously not happening now because um, where you drive, down, where you take the innovation to drive down that concrete, you're not getting, you're not being able to talk about that benefit. Yeah. yeah. I think we also, also need some consistency in the way we, we measure these things. Uh, and we launched in 2019 UK Green Building Council a framework for net zero carbon, which looked again at total carbon embodied plus operational, but also created a clear framework. If you're in the sort of real estate or property construction sector on how you would measure those emissions. Uh, and then we've, we've, we've sort of followed that up with a number of bits of guidance by building typology and about cost actually since then and about the role as a complete grass resort of things like offsets and renew, you know, renewables and offsets as well. And I, I, I use that term deliberately around last resort because that, that's what we passionately believe. Mm. Uh, but there is a role to play for those to get to net zero for the time being. Because I think that enables good accountability and I think that's a vital thing that we need to get as part of this package of solutions as well. We need to keep you know, building owners, construction companies, designers, all of us, we need to be accountable for what we're putting into the ground, on the ground and, yeah. and doing. Um, so without that clear set of metrics, consistent metrics, Again, it's not a level playing field to compare like for like. No. So I think that is a really important part of it. Mm. Um, so uh, one of the, I guess, most kind of crucial elements of, of, of all of this is, is, of course, the 1.5 degree target and the setting of net zero emission goals in line with, with climate science. We've talked already about the need for more focus on particular innovations. Um, but within the built environment sector, what are the kind of key areas, technologies or solutions which we feel need to kind of wholly be focused on um, to, to ensure that the industry plays its part essentially in keeping 1.5 degrees alive? Is there any particular areas where you think need, require the most attention to, to scale up? So one of the things we at JM we, we go about our projects with challenge, challenging today, reinventing tomorrow. And I think that one of the things that we're really driving forward, you know, we can make the biggest impact if we don't build. So our default position isn't to build infrastructure. Our default position is to challenge the need and to work with multi-stakeholders to look at a better way of doing things. Um, so that programmatic approach to, you know, understanding the client's needs for what they want and why they want that infrastructure in the first place looking around multi-sector, you know, multi-sectoral but multi-stakeholder approach to is there a way we can work with the existing infrastructure, the existing systems to look at a better way of doing this. So that notion of build less, um, you know, don't, no build, build less and then build smart and build efficient. Um, so that's kind of like the hierarchy that we are, you know, driving to ultimately, you know, that's where we can make the biggest saving of carbon emissions. If we don't need to build, we can be smarter with what we've got already. So something I would like to add, because I talked earlier about 3D printing and how the business model has to change, how I want to stop selling you my concrete, I want to start selling my solutions, which mm -hmm. is a very different concept. Yeah. But I want to talk two seconds about circular economy, because when refurbishing is great, but at the end of life of a building, you actually end up with what we call construction demolition rights, which has rebels. And those 
the hierarchy of waste, everyone talks about hierarchy of waste, but there is a true meaning here. You can either use those rubbles and put them as road basements, for example, replacing aggregate, which in terms of CO2 impact is very limited, or I can put it straight back in my cement and replace cement or replace concrete. And when I do that, the CO2 I'm reducing is way more. So how do I put my hands on those rubbles? It's not that this is a value chain of the waste of the CDWs are not that it's not that well uh, organized today, but also the norms. So today in Switzerland, I have a cement, which is made with 20% construction dimension waste. We are pushing to get to 50%. We know we can do it, but get the norms. That's the only country in the world that, norm, that accepts that norms. Soon Europe should accept it by 2023, but I could be ready tomorrow morning to reduce my CO2 directly by circular economy, full circularity. So that would be an addition to what uh, Zoe just yeah. said. And that's a really important part of like driving down emissions in, in our industry. Okay. Sure. I'm going I'm to bring an, uh, an occupier point of view to this discussion, um, which I think will be quite quite useful to, to take. So I'm, I'm going back a couple of years ago when I was at M&S and I led um, sustainability of their property estate. And I'm just going to share some lessons from an operating building's point of view. Uh, and what we found firstly is that yeah, measurement is so key. Just knowing what your impacts are is so key. because. We'll be really surprised about how wasteful we are in the way we use resources, not just energy, but any resources in buildings. The second thing, I think the, the lesson I'd, I'd share from that journey would be um, investing in, in, in not just people capability, and I mean people in sort of the full value chain, not just M&S colleagues at the time, but supply chain and also uh, working with our landlords and you know real estate partners, but also in investing in the right technologies, uh, which is, sort of leads to your question. And and in a in a retailer with large sort of occupied real estate, you can really scale that really quickly. So, we started off with some LED experiments, and then we made them standard right across our estate in a re relatively quick time. But and then the third thing is, it's not you know, we sometimes need to reframe the narrative about this in terms of an occupy point of view. That by doing, by, by, by installing sort of carbon efficient measures, of course there are environmental benefits and cost benefits, but actually the social benefits are sometimes far greater than that. So, you know, be, having lighting that has got better rendition, that is more flexible, that creates a better atmosphere, that enables better health and productivity and in, in, improves dwell time is really, really critical. And read for that, then, you know, better air quality also in buildings means a lot of health benefits. And, and when you know, we are in the sort of post-COVID uh, sort of time, reimagining our cities and reimagining our buildings, these factors, particularly the health and well-being factors, have gone really up the agenda. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask about this in terms of the kind of post-pandemic built environment, what it looks like. Um, Zoe, perhaps we'll start with you. In terms of, um, I guess, what COVID has, has taught us about the role of buildings and green spaces in our society and and the role I guess this whole sector can play in, in driving a green recovery. From that sort of social perspective, um, yeah, maybe a bit of a comment from you about what maybe the pandemic has taught us and, and the role that buildings can play. Mm. So I think flexibility is key. Um, you know, I don't think there, there won't be a, a clear black and white people will go back to offices like they used to and there won't be a clear people all want to work from home so buildings need to adapt and they need to build in flexibility to people like the needs of today in a post-covid world or post-pandemic whenever that happens um, so I think it's you know yes it's having potentially smaller footprints as an, you know a building with a, a large office footprint you know we will be looking and we have been consolidating and reducing our square our floor area 
Um, but making those spaces work harder for us as well. So, you know, this notion of one desk per head is long gone. I mean, it was gone before, way before the pandemic as well. But we are really sort of looking at, you know, when people come into the office space, what do they want to do there? So understanding how people are using that space is really important as well. Um, and I think also the pandemic with everybody working from home, you know, I think it has awoken people to the, the importance of nature in the day-to-day of people's working life as well. And I was joking with someone the other day, it's like I found myself in between meetings when I was working from home in the lockdown, deadheading the flowers around my garden. I was like, what am I doing? I'm turning into my mother. I've never done this before. Um, but it was just such a therapeutic way to wind down in between meetings and just be in touch with nature and just so I automatically found myself like blending work and nature and, and that and I think if we can get our office buildings and cities to you know we talked about it earlier like get bring nature into the office space bring nature into the cities um, I think that's a really important thing for people's well-being for their mental health as well going forward in the workspace mm. I, I'm just building on that point I completely agree about the, the, the point on nature and the connectedness that we we now value with nature but actually it's a connectedness between us as well that we value more because we took it for granted you could just rock up and meet people whenever you wanted yeah. and then we were restricted yeah. on it so those social interactions I think have become much more important to us now and, and perhaps the reason why we want to go to the office uh, is because we want to bond socially more than actually do business with each other or do work with each other and I think um, but the other thing that I think has, has this, uh, this pandemic from a built environment has really magnified is some of the inequalities that the sector also perpetuates. Um, if you look at the correlations of COVID um, sort of uh, propensity and the type of buildings those uh, um, those people lived in, um, you'll see that you know those were you know, dense urbanized urbanisation, many people sharing small spaces, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the pandemic definitely hasn't. It's we've all been affected by it, but definitely not in very equal ways. And the built environment has been at the heart of causing some of that inequality and perhaps increasing it. I, I think everything has been said, so I won't add anything except one, which is what we learned during COVID is that we could entirely outchange our way of life within weeks and be all fine about it, more or less, but we adapted. So why can't we change drastically the way we do other things and that things that should be the topic of the cop myself yeah. <laughs> that when we say we can't change fast no covid showed us we can yeah. and i think that's one of the things we're hearing loud and clear from Absolutely. the protesters you know from the voice and of the youth agree. that is what they're saying they're saying the world's done it the world got together yeah. and changed it has required urgently for covid mm. now let's do the same for decarbonization resilience mm. yeah and no, when we talk about solutions you mentioned that earlier uh, of course, you know, we never in history has a, has a vaccine been developed as quickly, right? So we are capable as a race of creating those solutions. We already, we already have solutions for the climate crisis. But what we've also learned is the deployment of those solutions has to be done in an equitable way. Uh, because we had all the vaccine politics. You know, a lot of the, most of the world still isn't vaccinated. We're, we're privileged. So the climate solutions and the ecological solutions that we seek we must think about how we, we can apply them to all people and not just those that can afford them or those that have the know-how mm -hmm. or those that have the um, ability to deploy them. Uh, and that has been, of course, a big theme of this COP, you know, the funding gap and things like that about the responsibility of developed nations who have been largely responsible for emissions and their responsibility towards helping the less developed nations, A, mitigate against inevitable climate change and B, 
on their own net zero and sustainable journeys. Mm. And I think one of the one of the criticism of COP will be that we didn't bridge that gap. Mm. And actually, There's still time. There is. That's true. That's Fingers true. crossed. Another what? Eighteen hours? Something like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Depending on when this podcast. Goes <laughs> yeah, that's out, true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's probably will happen. We'll have to talk about it. Going. Yeah, it was a great COP. Um, actually, so uh, I'm just conscious. Actually, I just looked at the clock. So we've got about nine, ten minutes left. Um, collaboration. It's a, a word that's talked about a lot. You sit on a lot of panels, I chair a lot of panels, and you kind of come out of it all agreeing more collaboration needs to be sort of needs to be happening. But beyond just kind of, I guess, a, a bit of a buzzword at its worst, what needs to actually really happen in this built environment sector um, to foster greater collaboration, more powerful partnerships across the built environment to start achieving those levels of change and the speed of change that we need. Can I start on a positive point, mm. um, if I may, um, which is actually, um, that's exactly one of our key purposes at UK Green Building Council, is to bring the diversity of the industry together under a common purpose. And I'll give you three proof points or examples of where we've done that really well, really effectively. Uh, and so let's start on a positive. Firstly, uh, with this whole life carbon roadmap that I spoke about earlier, over 100 cross-value chain partners, uh, businesses, uh, governments, etc., have been involved in that, which is fantastic. Secondly, we launched here um, a, a COP virtual pavilion, uh, Better Build Now, uh, which, is, uh, which I'd really recommend. Again, over 100 partners got together to create that and, and you know, present it here at COP with 17 great solutions from around the world as well as a whole event series. So I, I, you know, we, whilst more needs to happen, actually I think in the last couple of years we're seeing evidence of the industry coming together more than it ever has done before. So I wanted to start on a positive. I yeah, think, I, I think right. that's great. And it, I absolutely, I mean, we collaborate on a daily basis, whether it's with our clients, not just in that sort of like, you know, we're working for our clients, but we're thinking a lot more holistically and broader about what we can achieve with our clients. We're doing it with our supply chain. You know, just this week, I've gone around and met, I've met loads of like startup tech companies that, you know, we're going to, you know, really great solutions that we can actively bring back into our solutions and, you know, drive progress. So I think that collaboration is happening. Um, for me, the, the gap in the collaboration is this whole, like, how are we going to get the finance that's been promised from the private sector and, and use that to, to invest in some of these, you know, green infrastructure projects, cities, smart cities. Um, so how, how can we as businesses better help that connectivity by actually, you know, bringing the finance to where it needs to go? Mm. Uh, I agree. I think a lot of collaboration is already happening. Um, if I take the example of the Global Cement and Concrete Association, GCCA, um, we announced our uh, roadmap to net zero about uh, two, three weeks ago, which is really, a, it's a 18 months of work, so it's a true roadmap, it's not just an announcement, and it's a completely collective action of um, 40 CEOs who are representing 80% of the produced cement and concrete in the world outside China. So, okay. so. In the sector, it's happening. In terms of what I was talking about, value chain, starting talking about solution and not just products, that's for me super important. And we need that discussion is starting, but I'm not sure it's where it should be. If I continue to value chain, we signed up for the first mover coalition from State Secretary John Kerry, where we look at ourselves as a supplier of concrete so with engagement on that, but also um, we use, for example, two billion kilometers of trucking. And for us, decarbonizing the transportation mm. is super important. But I would say, I think what is really missing, myself, is a common measure. 
So again, I talk about CO2 per cubic meter. Uh, some people talk about CO2 per square meter, mm. per usage, per this, per that. And we don't actually have a common, a common measure that shows impact. And, and I will be back to my EPD, uh, Environmental Product Declaration. This is where this type of initiative can be quite useful. The other area of collaboration gap, perhaps, is, is actually uh, a point you've just made, Magali, around um, value chains. And, and I think we forget, you know, that most of the organisations that are involved in the discussions here are large organisations, right? They're large multinational organisations. 70% 70, 70 of our membership are SMEs. So there is a, there is an, a, a de and they're the people that will be delivering these solutions. They're the people that we're going to be relying on to support us in all of our supply in the value chains. So them being part of this discussion and them being tooled up, being incentivized through finance, being um, where their capacity can be built is still a gap. So I think we need to be mindful of that and we need to close that gap quickly. I think, <clears throat> excuse me, just on the, um, so one area I think would be worth mentioning um, is because it's really important and I think that it holds a lot of um, solutions for us as well as that collaboration between infrastructure and data and digital companies, the tech companies, because creating smart cities and smart infrastructure, collaborating with those de um, data companies is going to really help solve a lot of our, uh, you know, drive and accelerate what we can do, I think. And I, and I agree, and I will bounce back on what you said on startups earlier. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of our solution will come from outside. And I think the big players like, like Horsim, we, we contact a lot of startups. We have to be humble on the fact that we don't have all the solutions ourselves and listen to all the, the startups and ventures, etc., to bring them in. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so we have got about three or four minutes left. Um, I've asked only about four of my sort of 10 or 15. No, this is great. You've covered up all of the ground that I wanted to cover anyway, so it's naturally worked. Um, but my last question was just around reminding ourselves of where we are today. Um, here in Glasgow, COP26, I want to start thinking about the legacy of these talks. We have to now, right? It's the last day um, officially of the talks. Um, so thinking about this podcast's core audience of listeners of business leaders and, and fellow sustainability and climate professionals what would be your kind of key piece of advice when it comes to translating the, the global aims and ambitions of, of cop 26 into tangible localized business actions around our buildings and the built environment and i'll go in the order that i first introduced you into the episode so munish let's start with you so so um, my big message is that the built environment is um one of the most critical and credible solutions to the climate ecological and social crisis that's my big message we spend as i said earlier 90 percent of our lives in and around the built environment it has a profound impact on our quality of life. It can really, really um, make our life better or make our life worse. It's also an asset class where, if with the right investments, um, the returns are almost always guaranteed and in most cases are almost always immediate. So you can really, really see that uh, in positive impact very quickly. Uh, and therefore, I, I think, and I would say this, is it's, it's a sector that you know, we should really get after. And if you're in this sector and you're a solution, consider yourself as a solution provider and get on with it. Magali, I think what Manuel said was almost perfect. So I, the only thing I would add is I think we need to move, uh, you know, I want to start a new hashtag from pledge to action. And I think that that from pledge to action is so important, it's so critical, the credibility of what we are doing here, which is what we are doing today, how our um, science-based target 
is, is used to, to define our goals, etc. And I, I think we are at a very critical moment here where everyone is pledging, everyone has good intent, but we really need to see the actions, the action plans and, and, and the science behind. Yeah, I agree. Talk is cheap. It's easy to make commitments. It's easy to make pledges. We are all on the same page. Everyone knows what we need to do. We know we've got the technology, the innovations to make it happen. Just do it. Like, that is, that's what we need to Second do. Second hashtag, just do it. Just do it. I, mean, I think that was taken. <laughs> yeah, yeah, has, yeah. um, we can come up with an alternative, but it's let's all just get on with it. Let's fight harder, work harder to actually implement and make it happen. And let's keep ourselves account and each other accountable. So transparency around reporting, measuring, and um, that accountability piece as well. Mm. Great stuff. Okay, well, I've listed the hashtags. Thank you so much, guys, uh, for a fantastic discussion. Uh, on that note, I'm afraid I'm going to have to bring the discussion to a close. And what a fascinating discussion this has been. We've covered so much ground in the space of half an hour. I've only had to ask a handful of questions there. Um, so I'm not even going to attempt to summarise it, other than to say um, there is clearly tremendous progress happening in this sector already, as we've just heard. Um, but COP26 and these negotiations happening around us at the moment are, of course, going to be vital in, in helping to quicken the pace, join up the dots in terms of policy, and ultimately keep 1.5 degrees alive in this sector. So. First and foremost, uh, as we wrap up, I'd like to say a huge thank you to our mini panel we've convened here this morning, uh, to Manish, to Magali, to Zoe. Um, I know that diaries over these past two weeks have been absolutely manic, so really appreciate, appreciate you taking the time to make this discussion happen. Uh, thanks also to everyone listening to this session, um, and please do make sure you're subscribed to COP26 Covered wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to have a final episode publishing, I think, tomorrow. Um, so do stay tuned to that. Stay tuned to ed.net for all of our coverage from COP26 and post-COP26 as we look to turn some of these ambitions into actions. Thank you. Thank you.